Welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, we were on a bit of hiatus for the summer, um, but we resume in the wake of what seems like a grim milestone, which is federal debt hitting 100% of GDP. So in, in layman's terms, the amount of money that we owe to creditors is equivalent to the amount that the entire economy produces in the course of a year. So why don't we just start with some very basic table setting about how we got here. According to the CBO, the federal government took in $3.5 trillion in revenue in 2019. For a simple country podcaster like myself, that seems like a lot of money, but we spent $4.4 trillion. So for people who aren't deeply immersed in the federal budget, what would you point to as the major drivers of this trend, that even with a lot of money in the federal coffers, we're still running up more and more debt? Yeah. Uh, so, um, in, in this year, of course, the Congress has spent an enormous amount on COVID, but we were, uh, rather unusually, um, not running surpluses before the, the standard thing to do is to run deficits in recessions when the government, um, is making less money uh, on taxes because people have less income and spending more money, uh, to help unemployed people and, and so forth. Uh, that's been the standard pattern. But then, uh, when you go into an economic, uh, boom, as we were to, uh, to, to actually start uh, uh, raking in some sur- surpluses to pay off those debts. So number one, we weren't doing that. We were already running deficits um, during the boom time, and now it's it's just huge. Um, now, you can do this for a while, as a household can do this for a while. The worrisome thing is that the trend is to more and more, uh, and that um, Congress seems to have forgotten that money that it uh, borrows today needs to be paid back. Um, so, in fact, the 100% debt to GDP is, is I was trying to be conservative. There's a lot more out there. <laughs> that doesn't count, for example, the money the Fed has printed and given to people. It doesn't uh, account for state and local. When you said we, it's just the federal government in that number. We know that our state and local governments have borrowed an enormous amount of money that they have no idea how to pay back. And uh, really, the, the looming problem is... Um, entitlements the federal government has promised to pay pensions, health care, Social Security, and uh, <clears throat> the today's deficits are nothing compared to what's coming down the pike when all those promises come due and there's no tax revenue to, to pay for them. Uh, so that's where we are. <laughs> well, now there are, as you pointed out at the blog, there are very well-respected economic thinkers who don't lose a lot of sleep over this, who think we can operate with a pretty high level of debt for a pretty long time without enduring any especially painful dislocation. So the the last time that we got together several months ago, we talked about the modern monetary theory version of that argument. And people can listen to that episode if they want to learn more about that. But MMT is a little bit exotic. There are much more conventional flavors of analysis, the upshot of which is still, you don't have to worry that much about this. Can you walk us through those arguments and also where and how you differ with them? Yeah. Um, 
So MMT is you, you're you're so polite. You use the word exotic. <laughs> I was going to use words like incoherent, uh, but we don't have to go to that sort of thing. And I used in the blog posts. Um, I, I I picked on a little bit uh, both Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard. I, I pick on them because they are so well respected and such good economists, and they have thick skins, so I don't have to worry about them. <laughs> uh, but they, um, their views are, in fact, logically coherent. And the question is, I think, an honest one of, of just how troublesome is debt? Um, we, we, Washington has moved from a, a narrative of, you know, debt is awful because our, our uh, grandchildren will have to pay this off. And to a narrative, the Washington narrative is now just spend money like a drunken sailor. Uh, but... Um, uh, I think there's a a, uh, a deeper intellectual current that try, that is saying, well, maybe debt isn't such a bad issue after all. So let me uh, state the two arguments, uh, and then we'll think about uh, whether there's certainly possibilities, but are they right or not? And uh, Olivier Blanchard, I, I picked on him for the uh, the first version because he gave a uh, a speech as president of the American Economic Association which may it possibly could rank up with Milton Friedman's speech for its prescience. Uh, he said this before the current big, enormous deficits, the deficits may not matter. And uh, we've now racked up another five or 10 trillion of deficits <laughs> beyond what he envisioned. Uh, so he certainly was thinking ahead of the curve. Anyway, we get to the point. Why might debt not matter so much? Well, uh, Olivier points out, we uh, are now in a situation that the interest rate the government pays on the debt is less than the growth rate of the economy. Uh, what that means is if the government borrows, let's say, a trillion dollars and simply never pays it back, uh, borrows a trillion dollars and then uh, pays interest on it and borrows more money to pay that interest, and then the year after that pays interest on the interest and the government just borrows more money to pay interest on the interest, <clears throat> and, and before your head stands out, so long as the economy grows faster than that Ponzi scheme, the total amount of debt relative to GDP will actually go down. You can, in some sense, grow out of the debt. What's happening is the government's ability to tax rises with GDP. So if GDP rises faster than the interest rate, your ability, in some sense, to pay it off with taxes gets easier and easier over time. And that was indeed some of, my guess is about half of the mechanism by which the U.S. paid off the World War II debt. Uh, we simply rolled it over and then the economy grew until it was less of a problem. Now, uh, that's lovely, but the big questions before us is how long will, I'll, I'll use the equations, R less than G. R is the interest rate on government debt and G the growth rate of the economy. How long will that last? Will it last long enough to let us grow out of this debt? Uh, and second, how scalable is it? Um, if the interest rate is less than the growth rate now, suppose we borrow $30 trillion to finance the Green New Deal, will the interest rate stay low and will the growth rate stay high? Uh, and those are both uh, very worrisome questions. And, and Olivier is, is straightforward. He, he worries about that too. And I I'm, I'm, I'm would like to, we may have some discussions about, well, now that they've started doing what you said, are you still happy with it? Um, one of the big questions that the other scalable question is in that theory, suppose we have a thousand percent debt to GDP ratio, uh, debt 10 times, uh, annual, uh, output of the economy and therefore 50 times the annual revenues of the government. Well, 
Can we just grow out of that? And, and now you start to get uncomfortable. And you can see the trouble, which Olivia acknowledges and the central trouble I was worried about. When debt is enormous, you are, uh, even if you're growing slowly your way out of it, you're in danger of a debt crisis. Uh, we, our government rolls over short-term debt. So it's possible that the bondholders say, you know what? We're not giving you new money to pay interest on the old money. We want to put our money somewhere else. And now all of a sudden you are in a horrendous uh, situation. And I think that's the main trouble with the R less than G argument. Do you want me to go on to Summers or do you want to talk about that one first? Well, the, why don't you go on to Summers, actually? Okay, because it's a different argument. Right. Uh, the second strand of argument here is uh, closer to modern monetary theory, actually, although oh, Summers is quite responsible about its limits. Uh, that is the argument that we're in a state of secular stagnation. Uh, and um, there is uh, all sorts of business uh, lying around ready to go to work, all sorts of unemployed people, and that what we need is fiscal stimulus, and that by the government borrowing money and spreading it around to people who will spend it, GDP will go up, and it will go up so much that the government will actually raise enough in taxes to pay back the borrowing. Uh, this is the, the this is a, a Keynesian left wing version of the Laffer curve uh, that that fiscal stimulus is so strong that it will pay back itself in tax revenue. Uh, now that you know the difference between Summers and MMT is Summers says this only works as long as we're in a situation of secular stagnation, and so we can argue about are we in secular stagnation and how long does that last. So those are the two um, respectable, I would say, views. Don't, don't worry so much about uh, fiscal policy. And uh, I still am, am not convinced, but I think this is that's why it's worth writing blog posts about uh, to at least bring up the questions. And now we, you can help me, uh, you know, uh, figure out what the answers are. Well, I want to get you onto something that you talked about a bit at the blog, which is a really interesting historical analysis on how this stuff plays out. Your judgment in this writing is that uh, history does not offer us a lot of hope for a, a country's ability to pull out of these kinds of debt spirals. There are only a few positive examples, one of which you mentioned earlier was here in the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, but, of course, we can't just take hope from it happened before, it can happen again. We have to look at the factors that allowed it to happen before. So how, how does the debt-ridden U.S. of 2020 compare with the debt burden U.S. of 1945 and its prospects for turning the ship around. And, and I would uh, argue also a larger historical set of comparisons than, um, you know, if, if you if you pull the gun once and it goes click, that doesn't mean Russian roulette is a safe game. <laughs> uh, so uh, um, it's often said that, uh, you know, the U.S. at the end of World War II had more debt outstanding uh, than uh, up until right now. We are right now at the peak, at the World War II peak. So we're finally equal to the end of World War II. Well, so what? We got out of this once. After World War II, we'll get out of it again. And in particular, uh, something like half of the debt uh, from World War II uh, was just grown out of in this way. So I, I want to bring up two uh, quibbles with that. Um, one is interpreting that historical episode, and the other is looking at other historical episodes. Uh, at the end of World War II, the first thing we did is we sharply we had a sharp inflation. So uh, some I don't have the number in front of me, but I'm guesstimating like 20 percent of the debt uh, vanished in real terms because of the sharp inflation at the end of World War II. 
Then uh, through the 1950s and 1960s until 1975, the U.S. did run steady primary surpluses. We took in more tax revenue than we paid out in expenses, uh, not counting interest costs, which is the way you should do these things. So we were steadily paying back the debt, not just growing out of it. Uh, Third, the G end is the end people don't talk about enough. After World War II, we had very strong supply-side growth. First of all, the big spending had stopped. We won the war, done. We don't have to spend that much money anymore. Our problem right now is that the spending is ongoing, uh, the bleeding is uncontrollable, and the Social Security, Medicare, and pensions are coming to make it worse. So the situation looking forward is not what it looked like in 1945. Uh, They had strong supply-side growth in a fairly deregulated economy. We have very slow growth in a very highly regulated, much more sclerotic economy. Um, And finally, after World War II, the government took a lot of uh, steps to keep interest rates down. So you were not allowed to buy foreign stocks. You weren't allowed to buy bonds. Index funds didn't exist. You were herded into uh, paying interest on bank accounts was illegal. Uh, people were herded into low interest assets, essentially herded into holding government bonds despite low interest rates. Uh, so we have none of those uh, conditions going forward. Uh, and particularly the international openness makes us much more prone to us. It has an advantage that there's a lot of people around the world who like to hold U.S. government debt at low interest rates, helps us finance it has a disadvantage that they can be very fickle investors and run the other way soon, putting us in a big problem. So uh, just because we got out of it in World War II uh, does not mean that we have faced the same exact circumstance this time. And the second thing I would point out is that is one of two historical episodes I can think of in which uh, an economy, uh, an advanced economy successfully got out of a debt of this size. Uh, The United Kingdom did not exit World War II so well. It basically bankrupted them. They had a sequence of inflations, devaluations, debt crises, and and, uh, and so forth. Um, Germany and Japan didn't pay off their debt after World War II either. Now, losing losing the war wasn't necessarily good for your debt. Uh, But you look around the world, the, the only other success I can see of this magnitude is the United Kingdom after the Napoleonic Wars. It had uh, a very high debt-to-GDP ratio, and then the Industrial Revolution came along, and the G end of R minus G really uh, helped them. But other than that, the history of very large sovereign debts is a history of defaults, inflations, haircuts, workarounds, uh, and many unpleasant circumstances. So um, just because it happened once, don't take that as uh, you have to understand why it happened and are those preconditions here for it to happen again if we don't get this right if we keep going down the same road that we're on now what might in tangible terms a debt crisis look like and i ask that both in the macro sense but also at a personal level if i'm a middle-class american with a so-so 401k in a reasonable but modest amount of savings. How is my life different once the crisis scenario starts rolling? I'm, I'm glad you asked this because this is the central point of this post. And I think I'll come back and try to try my hands as a, a futuristic fiction writer to try to make this uh, whole thing more salient. Now, I think part of the problem in Washington right now is that it, it used to be, you know, why don't we just borrow a trillion dollars and send it to people? And people would say, well, that saddles our children and grandchildren with debts that they have to pay off. 
And, uh, you know, there is a point that this, uh, yeah, at the interest rates at which the government borrows are absurdly low. Inflation is absurdly low. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, if, if your um, election opponent wants to send a trillion dollars to uh, your voters and you're saying, oh, no, but our children and grandchildren might have to pay something. That's not a very salient point anymore, is it? Uh and and you can see MMT thinking has really taken over in Washington. I mean, if there is, uh, and to, to a great extent than economists, our, our economists are not seeing the logical consequences. If indeed debt has no fiscal cost, if our, great, our less than G will just let us grow out of any amount of debt, if debt just gives stimulus that pays back for itself, uh, my, my economists, uh, you know, Summers and, and Blanchard, even Stephanie Kelton, only envisioned well we we can have uh we can have good investments in infrastructure and needed programs and so forth washington has figured out if debt is free let's send checks to voters uh if debt is free for the federal government uh nancy pelosi is basically saying why in the world should my blue states have to pay off their pensions and pay off their uh, social programs and anything else the federal government should just print it up and she's right. <laughs> that is a logical conclusion. Why should anyone have to work hard to pay off their student loan debt? Why should anyone pay taxes? Uh, so th- th- this, the idea of debt being free has logically extremely important consequences. The economists just were very slow to pick up. But politicians were really, they understand free money on the sidewalk pretty darn well. And the markets are kind of offering it for free. You know, 1% interest rate will keep rolling over your short-run debt, 0% interest rates, and the more the more you buy. Now, there was some hiccups this spring when the Treasury had problems selling more debt, but the Fed stepped in and bought it. So this was all a preamble to why your question is so important. Now let me answer your question, because I, I can see you saying, John, move on, answer the question. <laughs> it's all gold, John. It's all gold. Go ahead. <laughs> well, this is an important I, the reason I started this series of blogs was to try to make a second possibility salient. And that is that the U.S., before our grandchildren have to work hard to pay, they have to get out of mom's basement, stop paying video games or or not be out protesting, go get a job and pay off this debt. Um, before that happens, uh, what is the danger we face? And the danger is, in my view, a, a crisis. So let me, let's try hard to work this together. The, the essence of the crisis is that that we're, we're in a bad time. Another pandemic hits. Maybe we're in a deep recession. We're in a war. We're in a financial crisis. Uh, the U.S. now, we're in the habit that everyone has to get bailed out. So the Treasury and Fed together uh, need several trillion dollars so that no bondholder ever has to take a haircut. That seems to be the way things going, that no business ever goes bankrupt. We want to pay people to stay home and not work for a little while longer if it's a pandemic. We need trillions of dollars of war material. If you know, Let's suppose that uh, Neil Ferguson is right in our last Goodfellows and that uh, China just invaded Taiwan and, and uh, blew up a couple of our aircraft carriers. So there's another trillion dollars we need. Uh, so we need these trillions of dollars. Uh, at the same time, we have this enormous quantity of debt, uh, you know, another 10 to 20 gazillions of dollars of debt that the government needs to borrow new money to pay off the old debt holders because we're rolling over our short-term debt. And international markets, it's an international crisis. China, by the way, just sold all its treasury bills and is trying to drive the prices down and interest rates up because we're at war with China. Uh, Europe sells all its treasury bills because Italy just defaulted and they have their own recession. 
Uh, and bond markets see an unreformed United States. Let's add to my picture uh, political crisis. We're still in the aftermath of the 2020 election where lawyers fanned around the country. Uh, Trump declared himself the winner, but uh, the uh, Democrats said, no, you're not, and started recounting the mailed-in votes. Militias are in the streets. There's been riots. Uh, there, you know, months and months before the House of Representatives have to judge the election, uh, civil unrest and chaos. Of course, the U.S. is never got around to fixing Social Security and Medicaid. Uh, and bond markets just say, no, uh, I want to put my money in Swiss francs and Kruger rands and <laughs> gold bars in, you know, in real estate, in, in stocks, in something that's vaguely safe. Then uh, the interest rates in the U.S., the U.S. needs to pay to roll over this debt spike. Our debt services become all of federal revenue. And the only answer is either a, a partial default on the debt, a haircut, or a very sharp inflation which not only um, uh, uh, devalues the government debt, but also throws havoc into the financial system. Our financial system is based on the sanctity of U.S. Treasury debt. So uh, basically, this is a situation where the firehouse has just burned down. We, we rely on the ability of the U.S. government to borrow or print trillions of money to keep the financial system afloat every time there's a hiccup. That, uh, that is gone. So this is just a, a cataclysmic disaster. And the, the two ingredients are the three ingredients, a very large amount of debt relative to GDP, which is what we're uh, racking up. That debt is issued in short term form that needs to be rolled over all the time. Just like a, a, uh, just like if you're a household, if you get the adjustable rate mortgage and interest rates go up, you're screwed. If you get the 30 year fixed, you can just laugh when interest rates go up. Well, our government has chosen the adjustable rate. And of course, uh, the deepest part, you can borrow lots and lots of money if you have a plan for paying it back. But the increasing sense of political chaos in the U.S. that they will not get through this crisis uh, and reform uh, the long term spending and uh, taxation issues uh, or just the fact that they, they won't have reform that that. Bond markets live on confidence for the future. So the, the confidence of a stable political system that is able to sooner or later do the obvious things we know we'll have to do to solve the long-run spending. You put those together. This is a calamity that could happen long before our children and grandchildren face mildly higher tax rates to pay off some debt. Okay, so let's end with the with the rosier scenario. They're all rosier scenarios. In that one. <laughs> yes, let's let's end on a good note. So let's let's say. A, uh, a president, Donald Trump, starts really caring about the debt in his second term, or a president, Joe Biden, comes into office saying, I've got to make this right for future generations. If they're calling on John Cochran and saying, give me the menu, give me the things that I can think about doing, even if they don't seem immediately politically practical, because it's a potential crisis, after all, we can pull out all the stops. What are the policy steps you're telling them they should be giving serious thought to? Yeah, and I do want to encourage uh, that thought. This is this has to arise out of a bipartisan consensus, out of legislation that passes uh, the House over the House and Senate over filibusters and whatever. Uh, this cannot. This is not the sort of thing that's going to get solved by an executive order. So, the usual discussions of U.S. political just vote my guy or gal in, and all will be solved. That will not solve this problem. So, Trump or Biden. Uh, puts together a bipartisan uh, coalition, we say a bipartisan commission or whatever, and we say, 
What can we do? Well, the same thing that all the bipartisan commissions have said in the past and nobody's done anything about. Uh, let us start with, we need to stop spending like a drunken sailor. Uh, spending in Washington has to uh, recognize the fact that this is going to be paid back by taxpayers, either slowly over generations or in a huge hurry when the crisis comes. Uh, let the crisis is, is, is much before generations come. But what do we, number one, in, I don't like to say entitlement cuts because that's partisan, entitlement reform. Um, we, we can fix the entitlements in a way that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, our health system, so that uh, no American uh, goes without. I don't want to impoverish people or take away their health care, but we can do what we want to do in a way that is much more cost effective and that fixes many of the broken incentives in the current uh, system. That's that's a show for another day, but let's let's put the let's put the words as reform the entitlement system, reform the tax code. We uh, need to raise money. Yes, uh, we, it's not just about cutting taxes. We need to raise money at, um, but at the lowest possible marginal rates. So raise more money, but less of the distortions in the tax code. Uh, the, the idea, we'll just tax the rich. I'm sorry, there's not enough rich. And if you raise their uh, marginal tax rates beyond today's 70% to 90 or 100%, uh, then you just killed that golden goose very quickly. Uh, so reform the tax code. Growth. Uh, our economic policy is, uh, n- neither side is really focusing on economic growth. It's, it's the G that matters. Uh, the only way we get enough tax revenue to pay back all this debt, tax revenue is tax rate times GDP. Well, raising the tax rate isn't going to work. Sorry, bad news for you guys. Tax rates are pretty high. Uh, we can do a little better by moving to a VAT. If you're going to have middle-class entitlements, you're going to do like Europe and have middle-class taxes. But uh, there's a better tax system. But in the end, raising GDP is the easy, painless way to do this. And uh, that's not big on, you know, inequalities on people's agendas, uh, left and right, uh, sending money to my supporters, not uh, growing the pie. I know it sounds old-fashioned, but we're talking about 20, 30, 40 years and and being on a sound supply side growth path will will help uh, matters enormously. And finally, uh, get the fixed rate mortgage. It is a crime that our government is uh, borrowing now more and more overnight because the Federal Reserve is now doing all the borrowing. Money and debt are the same things now. Uh, but uh, lock in. The, if bond markets are dumb enough to give you money for 30 years at 1%, take it. <laughs> And and at least we can put off that debt crisis uh, for a generation. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.